Today on Sharp Scratch, you'll learn the truth about microaggressions. And how racism can literally break your heart. And how to cure implicit biases on Tumblr. You're listening to Sharp Scratch, episode 22, Racism in Medicine. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection, where we talk about all the things you might want to know to be a good doctor, but you won't get taught at medical school. I'm Anna, and I'm a final year medical student, and I'm also the editorial scholar here at the BMJ. And I'm here in the studio today with our amazing panel members, Chidera and Raihan. Would you guys like to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Chidera, a second year foundation doctor working in London, an aspiring surgeon and a YouTube a little bit in my spare time. Hi, I'm Raihan. I am an intercalating medical student at Imperial College in London and I'm not 100% sure what my aspirations are yet, sadly. That's okay. Well, thank you guys for being here with me today. So today's episode is kind of a special episode to coincide with a special issue of the BMJ, um, which came out last Friday, which is all about racism in medicine. And it's something that um, has been touched on on Sharp Scratch before, right, in episode six. Um, I wasn't there, but you guys talked a bit about how you might treat a patient who is racist, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I think we know that that's only really a tiny bit of the huge issue of racism in medicine. And some of the things that weren't really spoken about in that episode is other places where doctors might encounter racism, um, such as from other staff. And there also wasn't so much talking about structural racism that's really built into the way that we live and work. So I guess that's kind of what we're going to focus on a bit more today. And I think kind of to kick us off, the first thing that um, I wanted to talk about is the fact that racism isn't necessarily like overt nastiness. Um, And sometimes it's behaviours we might not even really think twice about. And I thought for anyone who doesn't know or hasn't heard this term before, that we just put a little definition out there um, of this term microaggressions. So before we kick off with hearing from you guys about your experiences, let me just read out the definition from the Oxford English Dictionary. So microaggressions are defined as a statement, action or incident regarded as an instance of indirect, subtle or unintentional discrimination against members of a marginalised group such as a racial or ethnic minority. So I guess what I'd like to hear from you guys about is your experiences, you know, with this term, maybe things that have happened to you, if you're comfortable sharing that. Yeah, so I think a really important part of that definition is unintentional. I think a lot of the time, as you mentioned, when you say racism, people think of this sort of overt active of yeah, nastiness of trying to hurt someone mm-hmm. else. But actually with microaggressions particularly, it's born of ignorance, but it's not born of ill intent. Um, and I think for people of colour particularly, dealing with microaggressions can be really difficult because you're aware that actually this person hasn't tried to hurt you, but they have. And while the intent was not there, the outcome is that you've been hurt or you're offended. Um, and I can think of a number of times where people have said things to me at work where they haven't been trying to hurt my feelings or trying to make me feel uncomfortable, but 
that has been the outcome. And it's difficult because you, you don't want to ruin rapport with your team, you don't mm. want to start an incident, but also you feel out of sorts. And um, while we were kind of chatting about this before, um, you mentioned to Dara about kind of how pleased you were to actually learn the term microaggressions. I can remember reading the definition. I think I was in uni. I mean, I think most people of colour can think of instances, particularly when you were younger, of people doing things where you think, what you just said or what you just did made me feel really uncomfortable. But I don't think you're trying to be mean, so I'm not going to say anything, but I don't feel right. And the first time I read that definition, I was like, that's it. That's what I've been feeling or thinking about for the past 18 years. And I'm so happy that it's a term that people are becoming more aware of and as a result are trying to avoid because, again, like racism isn't just, you know, calling people derogatory terms or actively trying to make them feel bad, but it can be an accident. That it's an accident doesn't mean that we shouldn't do something about it, but it's it's just it's a different flavour, I guess. Mm. What about you, Raihan? You spoke before on the podcast about some sort of racism that you've experienced from patients mm-hmm. what about sort of from other people your peer groups or other healthcare professionals so i've definitely experienced it from peer groups now one thing about racism is i grew up in the north and at a time where it wasn't as diverse as it is now especially newcastle um, and we lived in an area where we were one of the only sort of ethnic minorities there so racism was like a common thing like my teachers said racist things but you just in an area where you think it's okay getting to university however changed my perspective I realized okay the stuff that you say is wrong like it's it's you can't say that and like I've had friends or like I would say they're colleagues okay Mm. and they make jokes that is offensive but they make it in a jokey way where it's like, oh, it's fine. It's just a joke. But actually, I don't know you like that. And even if I did, I would still find it offensive. So you can't really say that. And that you can pull someone up on. Mm. But what I find difficult is when you have members of staff in within the NHS who do certain things and might discriminate because of your colour that I find it difficult because you question, am I actually in the wrong or am I being discriminated against? And I've been in a few situations like that where other people have pointed out, actually, Rahan, that was racism um, because the same thing happened with us, but we weren't we weren't um, pulled up on it. So that is sort of my journey with racism at university and in med school and and, and in hospital as well. It's a bit complicated, I know, but no, it's but still I something think, yeah, to come that's... to terms with. It's like you learn as you go through and being in different like scenarios. Like in London, this is my first year living in London and it's different here as well. Mm. But again, because it's a lot more diverse, people are a lot more understanding. That's really interesting to hear like how it changed depending on like the kind mm-hmm. of setting that you were in and would you say that like maybe as you had had more awareness like you were sort of more able to recognize when yeah I mean so when I was in school I got sent out for making a bad joke Um, this is a common occurring theme apparently but (laughs) anyways I made a bad joke I got sent out and one of my teachers he said look you're a Muslim boy this is a Catholic school first of all you shouldn't even be in this school and secondly a young Catholic boy could have been in your position 
So you better behave yourself or I'll get you kicked out of the school. And I was like, okay, fair enough. Like, yeah, I shouldn't be messing around, whatnot. Later on, when I explained that joke to my friend as I grew older, and, and these are friends from like London and Birmingham, they were like, you know your teacher can't, like, you, they're not allowed to say that. Mm. But when you're young, you you think, oh, no, it's fine. It's it's like it's accepted. Like this is far nicer than what other people have said to me about my race or my religion or my color. So it's it's OK. Mm. He has a point. Mm. You justify their action. But then you come to university, you you meet different people from different backgrounds and they tell you, no, that's wrong. This is wrong. But when you're used to it, it's it's a bit harder to like get over that barrier, that hurdle. What do you think, Chidera? Have Do you think things have changed, like, throughout, you know, say, the time when you first started at medical school, like, to now? Do you think there's been any big changes or...? I mean, similar to Rahan, my biggest difference is that I moved from a very small... I mean, I wouldn't really call it a city. Cambridge is not a city. But a very small, very white place to London. So, yes, my experiences are far better here, but I think maybe that's a virtue of being in a more diverse metropolitan city. In terms of whether things at Cambridge itself or in other cities that have a similar makeup have improved, it's hard to say. I think there is awareness out there, but I think the thing with calling out racism or microaggressions is that it can put people on the defensive. So I think whilst there has been an improvement in, I guess, awareness of people speaking out about it I don't know if the sort of backlash that that's been met with in of itself is almost quite difficult for people to deal with mm. at the moment as well mm. and do you guys have any examples of things that like you sort of really com- commonly come across mm. that make you feel uncomfortable like day-to-day things so my name is one of them my name I think is fairly simple it's three syllables it's phonetic you say it how it's um, how it reads um, but it's my middle name my parents gave me an English first name because I'm named after my grandmother and then they gave me Chidara which is an Igbo Nigerian name as my middle name they then decided to discard my first name and have never referred to me as it so I don't respond to my first name now that can be a bit confusing for people because my NHS email etc involve my first name mm. but I always explain when I first meet people that I don't go by Helen I go by my middle name I've had a fair a few people say, oh, but your first name's easier, can I just call you that? Now, is that the sort of thing that you would say to everybody, or is it just because you see an ethnic name, which actually mm. isn't difficult to pronounce, but you can't be bothered to learn how to pronounce it, and actually Helen's just easier because it's familiar? Mm. See, this is where, I wouldn't say our opinion differs, but it's it's like I've grew up with being used to being called Ryan or mm. Rehan or Rylan, someone, I don't know how they found the L in my name, It's there's no L, it's a H. But I've had all sorts, but you get used to it. And again, this is something that was pointed out to me time and time again. Like when I meet people and they can't pronounce my name, I just say, look, call me Ryan. It's fine. See, I don't but do that anymore. A lot of my friends, yeah, a lot of my friends are like, you hard. can't do that. Like it's your name is your identity. It's like you need it's to. It's who you are. And again, it's something like this is where I said it today and Chidera pointed it out that it's you should make sure that it's Raihan and it should mm. be pronounced Raihan. Like, if you say it wrong the first time, that's fine. You know, yeah, it is in a language that maybe you, you've not, you're not used to. But if I correct you and then you ignore that or even offer up yourself an alternative, mm. then I'm like, that's rude. And it's the same, you know, I called you Ryan the first time, the first few times because I wasn't aware. But now you've corrected me, I'm not going to call you Ryan. I'm going to call you Raihan because that's mm-hmm. who you are. Mm. 
And I just think it's really not that hard. And it's something I've noticed a lot, particularly with Nigerians. We joke about it because particularly certain tribes have very long names with multiple um you know, syllables and maybe a few silent letters, but and people would be like, oh, can I just call you this random English name that sounds like one of the syllables in there? No! Mm. <laughs> I'll give you maybe a shortened version if I know you like that, but otherwise, you know, if you can say Anastasia and Claudia, you can manage Chidera. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the other thing that um, I've heard from, like, my peers and also I think a lot on social media is this whole asking people where they're from. So this is something that I'm not... I don't know how I, I feel about this. it because, to be fair, if I'm introducing myself with a name that is clearly not British, um, I don't mind that. But I think a lot of it tends to come from, I guess, the intent. I think this is one area where I think the intent for me tends to colour how I respond to that question. Mm. I've had people kind of say, you know, oh, where are you from? Particularly if they recognise my name and they say, oh, I think I know that name's Nigerian. Are you Nigerian? That's fine. However, I've had people say it in a way that's very clearly saying you're not from here, so where are you from? And you, and there's something in the tone of voice or maybe the context of the question where then I'm like, actually, this has made me feel a bit uncomfortable because why are you specifically asking this question? And mm-hmm. for the most part, people say, you know, where are you from? I will say, you know, I grew up in Kent. Um, and if they say, oh, where's Chidera from? Then like, I'm happy to elaborate. But sometimes people say, where are you really from? And things like that. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, what do you mean? Because you can hear me speaking. Do I sound like I'm from anywhere other than the home county? Probably not. Mm. <laughs> if people get offended with that question, then it's like, okay, the person is showing interest in your background and that it should be, you should be proud. You should be talking about mm. your where your, your origins are. I was born in the UK, but when people ask me, where are you from? Well, my roots are from Bangladesh. So it's nice that you have an interest that I am from Bangladesh and I will talk about it. If you want, I can explain the history of Bangladesh or or whatnot, but it's nice that they ask. Mm. And some of my friends actually get a bit, I don't know, offended when when they get asked that question. And I, I don't particularly agree with that because it can then, people are too nervous to ask that question. I've had people trying to ask me that question but they struggle. And it's funny to see. Mm. It's like, so, yeah, your where your your parents, <laughs> where, where they're from. It's yeah, like, basically I, what yeah. people are saying is, yeah. why aren't you white? And I think that's, that's, the, that's the part. So it's like, if you're asking because you're just curious about where my name is from or that sort of thing, I really don't mind. And I've had mm. conversations with other people. I'm like, I'll say, you know, where is your name from? I've not, I've not heard it before. It's, you know, does it have a meaning? That's beautiful. But it is, it's when the question, you can tell from the tone, you can tell, tell from the context. And sometimes the underlying connotation is, why aren't you white? Or you aren't white, so I don't care about the fact that everything's pointing that you've probably lived in this country most of your life. Where are you really from? And I think it's hard. And it's the thing with microaggressions. They can be really hard to kind of pick out. And sometimes the same thing said by Mm. different people will Mm. either be or not be a microaggression. So where are you from is one of those questions that I do see as a topic brought up again and again. And it is really hard to work out. I think even for people who may ask that question, kind of you have to think to yourself, why are you asking why are you asking? Is it because it's a name you've not heard before and you're interested? Or is it because, you know, you're trying to place mm. someone because they look other? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's really complicated, that topic. Mm. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So I wanted to find out a little bit more um, about the effect that microaggressions uh, has on people. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had a chat with David Williams, who is a professor of public health at the Harvard School of Public Health. 
as well as a professor of African and African American studies and sociology at Harvard University. Not an overachiever yep. at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Professor Williams' research focuses on the health effects of racial discrimination as well as the public health implications of marginalisation. Um, so we're going to listen to a couple of clips from Prof Williams throughout this podcast. Um, and they come from a long interview that her, David's just published with the BMJ on their podcast. Um, so let's listen to him now. We know that when someone experiences a stressful experience, a stressful incident. It, it leads to negative emotions. They feel bad about themselves. And these negative emotions can lead to underlying physiological uh, processes um, that adversely impacts their mental and emotional well-being, but that will also raise their blood pressure and, and lead to increases in inflammation and leads to what researchers have documented as the stress response. And so these, these are well-documented patterns and what we are seeing for the stress of discrimination. One of the things that is even surprising to me is how powerful the effects of the stress of discrimination is. I developed a number of measures that are used, widely used now, to assess discrimination, not just in the United States, but globally. And one of the measures is called the Everyday Discrimination Scale. It captures little day-to-day -day indignities. You are treated with less courtesy and respect than other people. You receive poorer service than others at restaurants or stores. People act as if they think you are not smart. People act as if they are afraid of you. Those little indignities, just let me illustrate some of the research findings. Higher levels of everyday discrimination leads to more rapid development of coronary artery disease when people, adults, are followed over five years. Higher levels of everyday discrimination leads to higher rates of inflammation in the blood, and higher levels of inflammation puts individuals at risk for a broad range of health conditions. Higher levels of discrimination leads to higher levels of blood pressure. Elderly persons who report higher levels of everyday discrimination experience more rapid declines in cognitive function over time. A study of adults followed over time Higher levels of discrimination, everyday discrimination, is an independent predictor of premature death. It's literally killing people prematurely. A study of pregnant women find that those who report high levels of everyday discrimination give birth to lower birth weight infants. Uh, a study of African-American and white women finds higher levels of everyday discrimination has a dose-response relationship to visceral fat. Visceral fat is the bad type of abdominal fat that is in between the internal organs and that predicts higher risk of cardiovascular disease and diabetes and high blood pressure and so on. So just this is an example of the kinds of evidence that documents that discrimination adversely impacts health. Moreover, we now have studies from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and the United States that shows that when we look at racial differences in health, adjusted for income and education, and there still is a residual effect of race, that is in part explained when we consider experiences of discrimination. So we now know from a statistical, empirical point of view that discrimination is one of the reasons why there are racial disparities in health. 
I think I've figured it out. This explains why the BME population have such high levels of high blood pressure and diabetes. I'm genuinely very concerned for myself. I'm yeah. not leaving London. This is the healthiest place for me. Forget like air pollution. The air pollution. It yeah. is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think a big part of it is that he's talking about discrimination. And again, discrimination encompasses microaggressions, which... I think I definitely know that I experience at least daily, if not more commonly than that. And now I'm thinking, okay, so not only are you making me just feel emotionally uncomfortable, now you're affecting my health. So I have to call you out on it because Mm. what? Yeah, exactly. It's not just something that we can downplay and say, oh, well, you know, they don't mean it like that Mm. or whatever. Mm. Um, It's actually a lot bigger conversation than that. And it's really important. My understanding previously of the differences in you know, health, well, the health inequality was, you know, maybe this is partly due to sort of class, maybe this is partly due to sort of genetic differences. The idea that it's actively discrimination, so not even sort of inbuilt differences or other things like wealth or region of the world that you live in that can have such a huge impact on your health is, is it's shocking. And I guess it means that I'm I'm always looking at racism and in a slightly different way in that not only is it sort of emotionally awful, yeah, but actually, like, is this a public health issue? It, yeah. <laughs> because, wow, like, the impact of discrimination and, and how that can impact people it is so wide-reaching. I never thought, like, this is something about racism which I never in a million years would have thought of, like, it affecting your health. Okay, mental health, that's understandable, but your health... And I joke about, okay, I've figured it out and that this might be the reason why BMEs have such a high level of um, high prevalence of hypertension and diabetes. But what if this is genuinely one of the causes? And we talk about like epigenetics and, Mm. and genetics. I think there's a lot more that can be researched and, and it makes and sense into. because we know that stress isn't good for you. Mm. And obviously this is a stressor that some people do not have to experience and that others will experience on a regular basis. Like yeah. being exposed to any sort of stress isn't going to be good for you. And if by virtue of the colour of your skin, you're exposed to a specific level of stress primarily because of that, then yeah, it makes sense that there's going to be obvious eff- evident effects mm. on your health. I found it really shocking. I mean, I guess like you, Chajera, I knew that um, certain, you know, minority ethnic groups had poor outcomes um, in certain things. I'm interested in obstetrics, so you only have to look at the big reports about maternal mortality and black women compared to white women, which is absolutely horrific. But I, I think my assumption was, okay, that's that's start that's because staff um, are, you know have implicit bias and are like underplaying people's concerns and things like that and it it, yeah it hadn't really occurred to me either that actually the activity of being discriminated against is so yeah it's so stressful um but yeah like you're saying it 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 does make complete sense when you really think about it in terms of okay this is a stressful situation it's something that happens to people pretty much on a daily basis and stress is bad for you like you can see yeah. those linkages there. I know. And I guess a big part of it is that when you're thinking about the impact of discrimination on literally your health, it then makes you think that, you know, it's not only then this sort of overt racism that we need to deal with, because actually even these microaggressions are clearly trying to kill me. So <laughs> let's do something about it. Like it's because they are stressful. And 
like I was saying before, the the whole thing with microaggressions that I've always found really hard is that they're one of those areas where the burden of the stress is entirely on the victim. Mm. Um, because with overt racism, if someone else sees you being overtly racist and calling someone, you know, a derogatory term, unless you're in a really bad crowd, most people will say, you can't say that. Like, that's mm. going mm. too far. The issue with microaggressions that, is that often the only person who picks up on it is the victim. Maybe if there's yeah. another person of colour in the room, they might, they might give you a little side glance, like, ooh, that mm. was a bit weird. But then... You're even there's even heightened stress because now you've been offended. Plus, you're trying to work out what do I do about this? Do I just like brush it under the carpet because I don't want to make it awkward, or do I say something because actually, that's unacceptable. Mm. Have either of you had an occasions where you have, you know, said something to someone? What kind of reactions have you had? So, it's a shame, but I I think I do pick and choose. Um, I have friends where I know that they're a bit more woke for lack of a better term <laughs> um, and there are people where I know that I mean with microaggressions of course the intent is rarely there but also that they won't get defensive you know I have friends that I can speak to quite openly about things like race gender sexuality so that means that when I say actually when you said xyz that made me feel a bit uncomfortable mm. it's a safe space to have that conversation because we both are approaching it from that mindset of I know you didn't mean to hurt me but I've been hurt, let's stop this from happening again. However, I've also had, and I know you've mentioned this, particularly with people who are in positions of authority, where they've said things that make me feel very uncomfortable and I've just had to bite my tongue. Mm. Yeah, like there's been, I like the, the example I gave you of my friend um, or the person on my course who made that joke, he, I, when I pulled him up on it, he was a bit shocked because he makes, he's known for making jokes that are a bit wild, like inappropriate and offensive. But no one really says anything to him. They just give him a laugh and just give him a funny look with it. But he was shocked. But one thing that I did respect was that he apologized to me personally, but then he went home and sent me a formal apology. And that was, it was nice. It was he noticed that okay, there's jokes, but there's limits, and you can't cross. Like when it comes to religion or when it comes to color and ethnicity, you can't make a joke like that because it's offensive. It means more to me than you will ever understand. And he, I'm glad that he took it away. He took away like he took it in a positive way, and and that's nice. But there's certain situations where you can't say anything, and mm. like. I, I was in the university, the college rugby team in my first year, but I left because it was such a racist like environment that I knew that I couldn't say anything. So I'd rather just switch to a different sport. And it's just better for me. Like there's certain things that are in your control and certain mm. things that aren't. If I can't control it, then we move. Yeah. And I think in medicine as well, it's it's such a like hierarchical system. Yeah. It can be really... Do- I mean, like you were talking about in the patient episode, like how do you deal with yeah. that when you feel like, you know, I, you... Yeah. I'm going to be on this team for four months. Yeah. So if I call you out in the first week, yeah. it's going to be a long four months. Exactly. Yeah. And it's it's hard, particularly when, it, you know... I mean, you, who calls out their consultant ever? Mm. It's so yeah. rare. Yeah. They talk about all of these things like, oh, this is how you can do like... Let's flatten this- the hierarchy, yeah. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> But I think we're moving forward with that, with like the new contracts, junior doctor contracts and stuff. There's some I mean, improvement. I've read about it, but I, I have never, I've not been on the ward. I've not fully put a complaint in yet. But 
we'll see when i mean you got you both will have more experience than me and wh- what is the the policy like and and the process of reporting someone when i mean i think you have to go to your personal supervisor there are normally like pastoral teams involved and foundation school particularly you have a foundation program director who is sort of normally separate to any team that you work on but is involved in making sure that you're all right in all senses of the word mm. but I mean, putting your head up and saying, actually, this makes me really uncomfortable, particularly within the moment, is so hard because, and again, it's annoying that the onus about this is on you, but it does disrupt the rapport. It does disrupt the feel of the team. It makes people uncomfortable. And it's annoying because you're already uncomfortable. So why are you worrying about everybody else being uncomfortable? But you are because you're a human being and no one likes to make others feel awkward. Mm. But again, this is probably one of the things that's causing this level of stress that's making mm. us so unwell because yeah. you're cons- you have all these things going on in your mind and chances are that the other person doesn't even know they doesn't said even, something yeah, wrong. Hasn't even like thought about it no. again. Um, we had a, a situation with a certain consultant who had made a series of racial and sexist jokes as well towards a series of different people and what actually ended up getting him stopped from teaching medical students was just the sheer kind of volume of people reporting Mm -hmm. so it was a lot of the things were probably things that he would never have thought about again but you know it was that like small lots of people reporting small things that eventually but it's sad um, it's sad that it has to be the volume that oh yeah definitely affects the outcome like why is it that 15, 20, 30 people have to put up with it just because one person's bad actions. Like, it's not fair. It's, it really isn't fair. Like, I think disciplinary action should be taken earlier just because it's... Unless they've been in the situation, they don't know how uncomfortable it is. Mm. And I think that's part of where dealing with microaggressions comes from because the difficulty is that they're born of ignorance. Any way to solve them is education. But that education can be painful because it essentially involves someone sort of unpicking their own understanding of what is right and wrong Mm. and having a look at yourself and thinking you know well actually what I said was not right and though my intent wasn't to hurt someone I have and even just Mm. having that conversation with yourself can be painful and you know I've had that conversation with myself because privilege exists in several different dimensions and in one dimension you may have the ability to discriminate against others and having to unpick what you said and why that's wrong and what's underlying that is is a very painful and, you know, soul-bearing experience. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree with that. And I think this is something, again, that we were kind of discussing a bit before, but particularly in medicine where I think a lot of people, especially the kind of younger generation of medics, they've gone into medicine because they want to help people. They consider themselves a good person. And it's, yeah, having that self-reflection and being like, okay, I really need to look at like where my biases are, what I've said that's not right. And yeah, I know I didn't mean it and I'm still trying to be a good person, but this is part of being a good person, but it's so uncomfortable Mm. like to do that because you just really really don't want to like reveal those like bits of yourself that you're like that is like that is an ugly bit of myself and I need to like not do that but it is the only way that you can really start to actually understand and improve like in some way and this is something that Professor Williams also talked a little bit about but before that let's hear from our sponsors How much do you care about indemnity right now? 
probably not a lot, you're still a few years away from really worrying about claims and complaints from patients. But being part of medical protection is about a lot more than just indemnity. We can be there if something goes wrong, but we're also here to help make sure things go right too. We're the only medical defence organisation that protects doctors all over the world. From London to Brisbane, Cork to Cape Town, 300,000 members benefit from our expert advice and support throughout their career. During your years at medical school, your membership is completely free. You'll get training resources that can help you become an even better doctor, plus a dedicated student team there for you when you need it most. And when it comes to your elective, you can trust in our international experience to protect you wherever you choose to go. It's no wonder that 90% of medical students in the UK choose to be part of medical protection. You can find out more at medicalprotection.org. Okay, back to the show. Let's hear what Prof Williams has to say about implicit bias. A large part of this is driven by implicit bias. It's driven by unconscious negative stereotypes that providers have, just like other members of society has, that affects the quality of care and affects how they relate to a patient. The good news is there is evidence of interventions that we can implement to reduce the level of implicit bias in the general population and in providers. The bad news is you can only begin to go down this path by recognizing this could be me. One of the things I tell my students when I talk to them about implicit bias and prejudice, I tell them that I think of myself as a prejudiced person. And I think of myself as a prejudiced person because I think of myself as a normal human being. And I say, if you are a normal human being, you are most likely prejudiced. I'm not saying you are racially prejudiced um, because race is only one basis of group categorization and implicit bias in our society. But every culture, every community, every society has in-groups and out-groups, groups that are viewed positively and groups that are viewed negatively. And all of us are products of our socialization, products of the messages we received implicitly and explicitly in part of our, of our growing up, of being raised in a particular society. And all of us have these embedded biases that shape our behavior in ways that we are often not even aware of. I think what Professor Williams was saying was really reflective of the kind of discussion we were having. Um, and I wondered if, like, you guys had any ideas about how we can start to go about doing this. So, for instance, one thing that I've done recently is, and it sounds, I think, kind of stupid when you say it out loud, but um, on Twitter I've made, like, a very, very noticeable effort to diversify the kind of people that I follow on Twitter. Um, and that includes, recently, has included a lot of people with disabilities. Um, and I find I've got like a, just by reading their tweets, I don't interact with them. I never try and say anything to them. I just want to like listen to their experiences. And that's been really interesting for me because obviously it's, there's so many things that you would I would never even think about. Um, so that's kind of one thing that I've been sort of consciously doing over the last year to try and have a better understanding of different types of people and the different sort of challenges that they face on a day-to-day -day basis. So 
I know it sounds kind of stupid when I say it out loud, but no, I, think no, that's, that's I did exactly sure. the same thing. So when I first, I can particularly remember, I created a Tumblr. This is so old school. <laughs> when I was, I think, eighteen or nineteen, and I started to really think about this is slightly just not related, but what feminism meant to me. And I realised that at that point, I, I think I discovered the term internalised misogyny. And I, I realised that there was an area where I had a really strong bias with sex work. I had no understanding of it or what it was at all. And I had just a very sort of, oh, it's wrong because you shouldn't sell your body, blah, blah, idea of it. And I created a Tumblr and followed like maybe 10 sex workers just who like regularly spoke about what their life was like. Because I was like, how am I, how am I supposed to educate myself? unless I'm listening to the people I want to educate myself about. And I think that's a really big thing is diversify what you expose yourself to. Realistically, we're all on social media. We have Twitter. We have Instagram. If you're scrolling through and all you're seeing or hearing are the same voices, how will you improve? And I I Mm. always make an effort to do that. Because I don't use social media as much. But when I come across someone with a different background to mine, one thing I've always had was trying to get to know them a little bit more just because it's quite easy and 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 this is human nature that we we get along with people that are similar to us but when we find someone that isn't we don't have the same interests we are from different backgrounds from different experiences we sort of dismiss them and and we move on Mm. but if you actually spend the time to get to know them and get to know what things you have in common there's a lot more you can learn from them, from that experience, than just being around that friendship group where, okay, you all have similar interests. Well, like there's so many of my friends that we look back and we think, how are we friends? Like we ha- <laughs> we are so different, but it, you appreciate it afterwards because you learn about them, they learn about you. And it's nice to have that. And this all stems back to like, it's it's quite silly, but this quote that I read when I was young, it's that the people that go like furthest in life are the ones that have patience with people from all walks of life. And it makes sense if you can get along with all sorts of people, all different kinds of people, and especially in medicine, we're going to come across a variety of different patients. It helps to have experience with different groups of people and being able to communicate effectively with all of them. And I think a really important quote from that um, clip that we just listened to was the fact that he said, I see myself as a prejudiced person. I think for me particularly, that's been the biggest part of helping me get over the hurdle of addressing microaggressions within myself is that, or addressing, I guess, my implicit biases is to just accept everybody has prejudices. Everybody is going to have some sort of stereotype or underlying bias about another group that you're not a part of because that's how the human brain works. We like to collect things and attach some sort of idea to this is how that works and this is how this works. So if you just accept that that's how we start off and that you can only improve and get better if you try and if you accept your weaknesses, accept your faults. For me, I found that to be the the most helpful thing in terms of addressing those biases. Mm, really hard to do, though. Mm. Very painful. But also, I think once you do get to that point, there's a, there's a certain level of shamelessness where after a while you're like, OK, well, if I'm if I'm just naturally imperfect, that shouldn't be shameful. What should be shameful is not trying to improve. Mm. And I love like when I meet people who are like, you know, I heard this or I think I said this and I think that's wrong. That's not embarrassing. What I find is embarrassing when is when you pull some someone up on something and they get defensive. Mm-hmm. And they like that's double how, yeah. down on it and they're like, no, why are you, yeah. you know, you shouldn't be saying this to me. That's yeah. how we need to change our mindset where we accept that people make mistakes and that you may have an implicit bias. That's not the embarrassing part. What's embarrassing is when you don't try. 
And I think what's clear is that there's still a long way for us to go as a profession and indeed as a wider society to start to break down some of these structural inequalities that we see. But I think what I'm going to take away today is that having a bit of self-reflection and being able to be open about my own biases is okay. And yeah, I think I really like what Prof Williams said about seeing yourself as a prejudiced person. What about you, Raihan? Is there anything you take away from today? I think um, a better understanding of what microaggressions actually are. I never really knew what they were before this. So yeah. And also, it's really nice to, like, this is off topic, but it's really nice to talk about. I think this has probably been one of my favorite podcast recordings, just because it's, it's, I never really talk about this that often, but it's nice to. Yay. I'm glad. I was very, very worried and nervous about this episode. <laughs> no, so I think it went well. Think it went well. What about you, Chidera? Um, I think my biggest takeaway is just really thinking about the impact that things like microaggressions and experiencing racism can have on your life. And I think it probably will hopefully bolster me more to call it out, even in situations where maybe previously I wouldn't have done. I think with time I have got better at doing that generally, but I think maybe I need to stop punching up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we can all be allies, right? I think yeah. that's something that you know, I would try to do in the future. It's something that I've never done before. Um, even when I have noticed things like that, um, I think I often feel it's not my place mm. and things like that. So, um, but yeah, I think I completely agree with you. Um, and I'd just like to say a personal thank you for both of you for coming on this journey with me. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's really nice to um, hear your experiences and I appreciate that it can't be that easy to share some of the like more uncomfortable things you've experienced. So thank you guys so much. That's all from us on Sharp Scratch today. If you'd like to hear more from us, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and in two weeks' time, you'll get our next episode straight to your phone. And while you wait for the next episode, why not check us out on social media? We're BMJ Student on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Let us know what you think about the podcast using the hashtag SharpScratch. We'd love to hear your ideas for what we should cover later in the season. It's also really helpful to us if you can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, as it helps other med students find the show. Until next time, it's goodbye from all of us in the studio. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.